Hey, welcome to another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I'm Rocky Snotter, your host. Each week, we bring in the pros behind the pros in sports. So if you're just tuning in, I'm glad you're here. We're going to be kicking this episode off with Josh Corbeil, who has been the athletic trainer, head athletic trainer, and also medical director for the Indiana Pacers, going on almost 19 years. And Josh and I both originated around the Boston area growing up and watching the Celtics and all the other New England sports teams, but in particular the Celtics and watching Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish and so on. But the thing about Josh is, well, he got a call from Larry Bird and said, you know, I'm going to need some help at the Indiana Pacers. That was almost 20 years ago. We're going to find out what he's been doing all that time. So tune on in, share with a friend, make sure you subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Rocky underscore Snyder, and hope you enjoy the show. Josh, I can't thank you enough for coming on, Zealous. I mean, you grew up in South Boston. I grew up north of Boston. We'll say suburbs, that is. But we both went into the garden, Celtic fans. And here you are for 18, going on 19 years with the Indiana Pacers. And who hires you there? but Larry Bird himself. So, you know, goosebumps going down my back right now because growing up and watching him in the garden and, and hanging the banners left and right through the 80s, it's just something that I, I just treasure and hold on to. But you actually, you've got a, a much better kind of experience than that. So if you don't mind, first, welcome to the show. And can you give us your superhero origin story of how you are the, the lead athletic trainer uh, medical director what and, and like you, what are your official titles that you hold with the Pacers these days yeah well first of all thanks for having me it's good to be here um, my official title is senior director of medical operations and head athletic trainer so but I'm a I'm a physical therapist athletic trainer by training uh, and in practice every day um, now I grew up uh, outside of Boston I grew up a Celtics Patriots Bruins Red Sox fan right on and, um I played three sports as a kid and in high school and was not good enough to play beyond high school. And I knew that at the time. So my high school career was spent figuring out what I'm going to do the rest of my life that includes sports. And uh, when I got hurt playing football, I kind of figured out quickly that this is a world that makes sense to me that I could see as an avenue to make sports my, my life's work. Uh, so I was pretty obnoxious about it when I uh, with all of my advisors in high school. And when I got to college, um, I talked to as many people as I could when I was in high school that, Hey, I want to work in elite sports as an athletic trainer. Uh, someday, what do I need to do? And at the time, everybody said, well, if you can be a physical therapist, as well as an athletic trainer, it's going to be a, a more fulfilling skill set, more, more marketable to teams. So I said, okay. So started looking into that. And at the time there were not a lot of dual majors available. So went to PT school first. And on my first day at Boston University, I went into the athletic training room and said, you know, this is what I want to do someday. I want to volunteer and I want to take athletic training courses. And long story, but every advisor I came across at BU knew I was the guy that wanted to be in elite level sports and I never let them forget it. So when I was doing my internships at the end, I was supposed to have one at Curlin Joe clinic out in LA that has a relationship with the Lakers and uh, they had some staffing issues so that fell through. Luckily, my, uh, one of my advisors knew Ed Lassert, who was the PTATC for the Celtics for 
30 plus years. Uh, he was an alumni from BU and she knew him. So she just connected us with a phone call one day and said, I got a student who wants to do what you do. Can you give him any advice? And Ed said, well, why don't you come down? And we had summer, they had summer league practice starting. He goes, come on down. We'll talk tomorrow. And I went down and he said, are you, you're a PT? I said, yeah. He said, are you an athletic trainer? I said, not yet. He said, well, you need to be. I said, okay. So he said, why don't you just intern with me? So he <laughs> internship and, uh, and I needed to make some money. So Ed owned a physical therapy clinic in the same building where the Celtics practice. So he proceeded to hire me full-time there. And then all the hours that I wasn't at the clinic, I was with the Celtics accumulating my AT hours. And when I finished that and got my ATC, uh, Ed connected me with Larry Bird and here I am 19 years later. That must have been like drinking out of a fire hose. I mean, just to be with Ed uh, and for New England sports fans, uh, I think most people know that name, but uh, man, that, that's just an accelerated course. And of course, yeah. So then you get a, you get a call. Uh, yes, this is Larry. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So fast forward, you're in Indiana. And now you are the athletic trainer and physical therapist for the Pacers. When did that start? Uh, September of 2004 was when I started. Man. And were you hired as the, the head athletic trainer at that time or did, were you an assistant? Yeah. So uh, I got hired as an assistant. So David, David Craig had been legendary athletic trainer. Um, the, uh, the athletic training staff of the year award that the NBATA gives out now is co-named for David Craig. So he had been here for 35 years and uh, I got hired as his assistant for the first year and he was kind of preparing for the next phase. So after my first year, he moved into administration. I moved into the head athletic trainer role and hired um, Carl Eaton and Sean Wendell, who are our uh, head strength coach and associate head athletic trainer. And they've been here ever since as well. So the three of us, you know, I hired them. They were the first staff I hired and they haven't left. That's great to speak of longevity because uh, I know when you have a coaching change, uh, GM change, there's often um, a stirring of the pot, mixing up and people are let go, favorites are hired and so on. But Obviously, this speaks volumes to your efficacy and, and your knowledge base that you've been able to stay there for almost 20 years. What's been the most challenging thing for you looking back over these over your career here uh, when it comes to whether you're day-to-day -day or, or whatever? I think there are kind of phases that we've seen over time. Like I know when I started, looking back on it now, I, when I took this job, I was 26. And looking back on it now, I'm like, God, why did they trust me at 26 to do this? Um, but I had a really good safety net. I had a great mentor, um, yeah, a PT by the name of Dan Dyrick, who's um, a Boston area guy, worked for the Red Sox for a while too, but he, uh, he worked with Larry during Larry's playing career. You'll see his name in some of Larry's books. But um, so he, he was a great mentor for me when I started. So I kind of had a ability to learn on the fly but I think those first six or seven years, uh, the challenge there was really making 
making a name for myself and establishing trust within the organization and outside the organization to to stick around, right? Because there's a lot of insecurity in professional sports. So yeah, we we really needed time to kind of prove what we could and couldn't do as a staff. And we had the the Pacers are a very supportive organization. So um, and then as time has gone on, the the sport has changed where the integration of sports science and analytics and just all the technologies that are available now and, and what we know now that we didn't know then and adapt as practice. Let, what are you talking about with that? Even workload type things, like just the just the implementation of workload measurements and um and training training volumes that was not really a topic back then it was does it hurt can you play now we're trying to be more proactive with planning out our sleep our rest our travel our practice intensities looking for red flags um you know as guys minutes go up and intensities go down trying to sift through that and figure out is that a fatigue factor or is that more strategy and game plan there's just so many more variables that we're educated on now that we didn't used to be and trying to adapt our day-to-day practice to keep up with that and the expectations that players have for the service we're going to provide so in regards to like uh say workload volume uh back in the early 2000s compared to now would you say that it was overemphasized or underemphasized? Do you feel like you were taxing the body too much, or could it be could it be challenged a little bit more? Back then, I don't think we put much thought into it. To be honest, I think we dealt with what was in front of us that day, wow. um, and you know there was some intuitive thought about you know the spike in activity during training camp and around playoff time, like you know, you knew that that was an issue, but it wasn't studied to the detail that it is now. It was definitely underemphasized then, but also the the amount of available information and knowledge was smaller 20 years ago than it is now. So it, it really started to swing uh, with the Spurs when the Spurs started to voluntarily sit guys, um, which you can ag- do you agree, or, agree or disagree with that philosophy. We've never done that to that degree in Indiana, but um, but it opened people's eyes as to these are factors that need to be considered. And then you just had this explosion of technologies to allow us to study that and quantify that, that over time, now you have this flood of information that trying to fine tune what to do with that it has, yeah. been a, has been a challenge because you could be inundated with data. Yeah, and, flood is probably a good term. Be, to be flooded, are you, do you feel sometimes like you're drowning in information? Uh, we did for quite a while, and we've taken steps to try to try to put filters on that and and minimize that. We still don't have all the answers, but we've definitely gotten better at it as time's gone. On. And what um, were the elements that were creating a lot of noise, background noise that you were paying attention to, but you eventually just said, okay. This is not necessarily where our focus should be. Let's look at these big buckets of, of information and data. Yeah, a lot of the credit for, for developing, fine-tuning that goes to Sean Wendell. He's, Sean's our uh, director of performance, but he, so our head strength coach, but that kind of undersells it by calling him that. Yeah. Uh, also an athletic trainer by, by uh, 
by nature. So he's he's got a little different perspective in there. But if you think back to when, even when Catapult started or we used Zephyr at the time was kind of our first wearable that we used. Mm-hmm. And looking at, you, you get all these different variables in heart rate and distance traveled and acceleration and deceleration. And you could just look at graph after graph on the, on the screen, but you, you're not factoring in, if you're not careful, you're not factoring in other, other variables and, and just kind of following the data, you get an incomplete picture. Um, and what I mean by that is you need to have people that are touching the players every day, communicating with them about, you know, you see, a, you see minutes go up, you see intensity come down. Well, is that, is that an impending issue for us? Is that a fatigue that could become a, a, an injury? Or is that just they happen to guard a guy who was standing in the corner for those two games? So uh-huh. we've, we've started to uh, have more incorporation of disciplines in making those decisions. And we're including coaching staff in that. We're including our PTs in that. Even our massage therapists, we have a sleep specialist. And Sean kind of takes all that information and tries to make sense of a lot of that data. So putting it in context, which we did not do a good job of doing when we first started to just accumulate. You know, and did, have you seen a reduction of, of um, non-contact injuries because of that? Can you look back at that? Yeah, not uh, the, the, tra- the, the big kind of traumatic injuries. And by trauma, I don't mean contact, but even traumatic non-contact injuries. The uh, high ankle sprain, ACL tear. Uh, right. So those, yeah, those have, have been, those aren't as, as big of a concern in our world as maybe the NFL is obviously they're a concern, but when we're looking at effectiveness, we're looking more at our overuse insidious onset type injuries mm-hmm. or tendonitis, those sort of thing, because those make up, excuse me, that's the vast majority of what we deal with. We obviously have traumatic injury injuries. You know, we have ankle sprains, high ankle sprains, knock on wood, we don't have a lot of ACLs or Achilles ruptures yeah. uh, compared to other sports, but the, the majority of our, our issue are your strains and your tendonitis. And that's what we're really trying to cut back on. So how has that changed? Because I'm, I'm curious, I, I deal a lot of that myself with the clients and, and athletes come through our studio. Uh, but when it comes to the itises, uh, the inflammation, uh, early in your career, I imagine your approach has, has gradually matured to some degree or, or changed. How, what's the difference between when you were first addressing or treating symptoms like tendonitis, bursitis, and so on, to now, what, what are the major shifts that you've had? So looking back on the early days, like the training everybody gets includes a ton of these passive modalities. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the whole 80s era of therapeutic ultrasound. And then you spend tons of, of units in, in PT school on all the ins and outs of electric stimulation and diathermy and all that kind of stuff. In practice, that those things are very small adjuncts that we kind of relied on too much in the early days that are hardly ever used now. Um, now we're, and 
when I say now, really, we started this change 15 years ago. We just got better at it over time. Um, but actually looking at uh, pathological movement patterns, you know, and soft tissue impairments. And we look uh, at functional, functional, uh, functional movement limitations. So there's a lot of the functional movement screen or fusionetics are big ones that look at abnormal movement on a gross scale. And then we try to start, start our kind of mapping with that, but then fine tune it down to even hands-on on the table, looking at three-dimensional mobility loss of patellofemoral joint motion or uh, different ankle and foot joint mobilities and soft tissue mobilities, not just in a pure single planar mode, but triplanar. So, so that we can incorporate that into kind of the Therex and the performance development in the weight room. And All right, totally time to geek out now. You just, you opened the can of worms for me to, to just dive in and, and absorb. So it sounds like you're telling me you do open chain assessments, three-dimensionality, joint function, and then you take it to a closed chain environment to see if it carries over there. Is that fairly accurate? Exactly, yeah. So. I'll give you a, a simple example to kind of illustrate it. So yeah. if you think back to our, our training, athletic training school, PT school, and you look at a standard mobility assessment is patellofemoral accessory mobility. And you're taught that, all, all, even our students now that we get in here um, twice a year, our interns, and we ask them to look at patellofemoral joint play, everybody immediately goes to full extension. Well, most, most athletes that haven't just had surgery are going to have pretty normal patellofemoral mobility in full extension, but that's not where they get their issue when they're on the court. So these insidious onset patellofemoral pain, patellar tendon, quad tendon, uh, overuse injuries, or just vague pain complaints, none of them run or, or play on a straight knee. So we need to look at those, the joint, the joint mobility and the soft tissue mobility in those functional uh, angles. So, so in we essence, pronation and supination mechanics through the whole lower limb. Exactly. And yeah. as, you, as you flex the knee, you're gonna lose patellofemoral mobility. So we need to treat it in that range rather than in, and then, so we're doing that in, you know, on the table in the training room, but then we're also walking over to the weight room and communicating with the strength coaches of, here was the deficit we just worked on now we need you to increase muscle activity, motor control in these new ranges. This is where his functional deficit is. We're gonna do some hands-on uh, impairment treatment, and then we're gonna correlate that in the weight room before we go on the court. And a lot of times it's including- Just know, so, the, we, I'm, I'm, we, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. We have input in the, the basketball side too, when this challenges that guys have, he can't decel his knee hurts when he tries to decelerate. So we'll work with our player development coaches once they've gone through training room, weight room to develop drills on the court to improve those specific uh, movements and activities. We didn't do that 20 years ago. Yeah, I imagine also the focus just stayed around the knee itself, but I have this feeling that you're going to 
look at knee mechanics in a closed chain environment loading into it, but how is that responding down to the telecruel or subtalar joint? How is the foot responding or go up above? What's the hip doing in all three planes of motion? How is the pelvis situated above the hip? And for that matter, where is the upper body loading over that area? Is, is that kind of where you go to? You just start in one place and then explore the chain? Yeah, it absolutely is. So you've got to look when you have any insidious or even traumatic complaint, you obviously need to start local, right? Because you got to see if there's any specific structural damage there. But a lot of the times we don't have that. We've just got pain for some reason. They didn't actually get injured. So what's causing that? And if you're literally just treating the knee, then you're missing the big picture. Yeah. Uh, we, had a, we had a player a couple of years ago who had insidious onset foot pain and it, you track it back and all the local treatments are not really moving the needle. It wasn't until we started correcting his pelvic alignment and his contralateral glute med activity that that pelvis lifted back up, he came out of the varus on that foot and his foot pain started to go away. So, but no one person is gonna do that. Like that's where the team approach comes in. That's why mm -hmm. we, we have such a big staff and everybody is sort of giving their input on guys. And we, um, it's trying to piece all of that information together to try to figure out where do we intervene. Yeah, so essentially, you're, you disrupt per preferred patterns, shall we say, subconscious patterns that develop uh, compensatory patterns. Uh, do, you, uh, do you look back, you must look back at an athlete's health history to see what happened before this began happening. Did they have some type of overuse in the shoulder and now they're starting to compensate through here and feeding it down just like the pelvic position unable to translate or whatever it was doing was feeding into foot symptoms you you must kind of kind of follow the breadcrumbs back to some degree i imagine oh i mean that's our starting point with everything so every new player walks in and first thing we do is a fms and a fusionetic screen so well let me take that back a step. The first thing we do is talk to them about what their history was. What's, you know, what, what is the known injury history? What were the big things that they missed time for? But then also what bothered them? And, you know, what bothered them that maybe they didn't miss time for, but they just played through. And when guys are, you know, here for a draft workout or a free agent workout and their status is still pending a physical, you may not get all that information till after all of that is cleared and now they're on your and locked in. And then we can say, all right, now you're here, your contract's guaranteed. Now tell me what's really bothering you. <laughs> so you might have some uh, withholding information. For sure, which I would do if I was in that situation. <laughs> I'm in for a tryout and you ask me if something hurts, it definitely doesn't hurt. Once I'm on the team, I'll let you know it hurts. But that, that information is valuable because the, there's a, you know, a lot of guys just think, well, I could play, so I wasn't hurt. Uh, we want to know what, what bothered you so that when you're out there, I don't want you thinking that you're playing through something. I want you to just think about basketball. But that information can guide us to look in different places to try to solve either a current or a future problem. But Josh, so, I imagine that must have been one of those light bulb moments somewhere earlier in your career. I mean, working with Ed, maybe you already were starting to learn that rather than a symptom-based localized approach and treating the area of concern, uh, but looking at 
the body from this whole integrative unit and knowing that force production at this lever is going to greatly affect this area of the body. Was there a moment in time, like you were working with somebody or you were watching some, uh, one of your mentors work with somebody and your jaw just dropped going, oh my gosh, the reason for his shoulder giving him that problem is because his lower back or something like that. I don't know that I can point to one exact moment, but I think that realization happened fairly early on for me because a lot of it was because of Dan. Like I had a, he was a heck of a mentor who saw the body uh, holistically. And so I was fortunate to have that early in my career. So I don't know that I had a, an aha moment, but I can tell you that because I was exposed to that early on, I've had this constant, even as I've gotten better and more experienced at this, you always have in your mind this question of what am I missing? have I looked at everything? Like what's the piece that I've just, I haven't looked at thoroughly enough. And the advantage of uh, our setting is we have access to these guys every day, but you still don't have hours every day with them. You know, you got 15 of them, they have other lives. So um, there's always been this kind of nervousness that am I being as thorough as I could be, which I think in some cases, ignorance is bliss. Like if you don't know to look for it, maybe you don't feel like you're missing it. Um, so that was kind of my experience. I got introduced early on, but it's been a, a long evolution. It's still, still ongoing. Sure. Okay. What, what are your go-to tools? Obviously your hands and, and your eyes and your ears, but outside of that answer, are there certain tools that you're going, oh, this is almost indispensable with the, with the Pacers? Yeah, my staff is my first one. Oh, dang. You had to throw that. I, I tried to to eliminate all those know possible what, answers, but you found it. I know it. what you're doing. I know what you're doing, but um, <laughs> really, that really is my big one. But in terms of uh, technology, modalities, that sort of stuff, um, the thing that we've had a ton of success with the last few years is, uh, is Shockwave. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So we initially got it just to treat chronic uh, tendinopathies, but just the analgesic effects and uh, some of the bone, the bone effects that we've gotten from it, it's, it's become really a, a go-to tool in terms of local, uh, promoting local cellular activity, mostly chronic stuff, not a lot of um, acute, but that's been, I don't rely a lot on products, technologies, but that's been a big one. All right, oh, very good. I wasn't expecting that. Um, and then these days, there's a lot of, of varying opinions, as it always is with things. But uh, ice versus heat, what do you guys typically do in your athletic training department? Uh, whatever the player wants. I don't push, oh. either, I don't push either of those. Uh, oh, interesting. I actually see a lot of the merit of natural inflammatory processes being allowed to, to run its course. So the, the anti-ice movement we're not anti-ice, like guys like to ice and they feel better afterwards. I don't have a problem with it, um, but I would prefer active recovery or some of the pneumatic compression stuff. Um, uh, I like, I, I tend to veer, if it's up to me, I tend to veer that way, but some guys were raised on ice and they like it and I don't object to it, try to talk them out of it, but I don't push. Them. And do you guys have hyperbaric chambers? 
we don't have a hyperbaric chamber in, uh, in the facility. And we tend to be slow adopters uh, because I, I really need it proven to me before I'm gonna jump in. Um, but that being said, we looked into adding one last year. And because we've been, we have a local hyperbaric center that we've been using a ton. Um, and the results as, as the, the supporting literature has gotten stronger, I've been more willing to, to push guys that direction. And I cannot argue with the results. And it was, we had enough benefit with a variety of players that I wanted to get one in-house. What we learned was that in order to get a high quality one, we weren't gonna have the space or the staffing to do it. And I was hoping to have it here so we wouldn't have to keep making appointments and sending them there, but uh, we're gonna stick with that. So we don't have one, but we use it a lot. Yeah, and primarily for just overall recovery. Now we used a lot on, uh, we've had, we've had a, I don't want to say a rash because that would be overstating it. We've had an uptick in bone injuries the last few years. And so for, for bone healing, it's been huge. Um, and some of the specialists that we've referred to have all kind of come back as hyperbaric being a huge uh, standard of care for stress injuries and fractures. So we've used it a lot for that. Why do you think that is? Why is there a spike? Would you, are you, you know, what's your conjecture on that? Uh, for us, per, I think it's kind of a blip just with our particular roster at the time. Okay. I don't think it is like a pending uh, trend in sports or anything, but your roster turns over all the time and you have a different mix of players and they have different issues. So I think just kind of coincidentally, we've dealt with it more the last few years. I don't think that like the league's changing and we're dealing with more of those going forward. I think it just happened to be the particular mix we had. Gotcha. Okay. You mentioned staff. I, and I, of course, you know, we can't ignore that, that being your primary answer. How do you create a team? How, how did you formulate your team? What do you look for in the staff, um, the different positions and, and the type of people that you have breeding success for you? Yeah, we rely on our networks a lot. So we, um, we've had very good relationships with, uh, with schools that are kind of feeders for our intern program. So whenever we have interns come through, we always kind of keep notes of who do we see that had the qualities we want that we might want to contact later if we have an opening. So we sort of keep that active list in our minds. Um, and when we have a need, if we don't have someone that we can sort of immediately identify from that list, then we have professional contacts that we trust that we know um, work similarly to us and, uh, you know, may have, so we kind of pick their brains for, for people that they would suggest. So in terms of identif identification of people, that's where we start. But qualities are, um, we put a heavy, heavy emphasis on uh, clinical problem solving. So I want, I want thinkers and I want thinkers that are not afraid to challenge each other. So we tend to, like our, our current staff, we have four uh, full-time PTATCs and then we have four full-time strength and conditioning coaches. And as far as our PTATCs, Carl, Carl I hired, you know, my second year on the job. And then Patrick Gilbert is our, um, he's been, I think, five, five years or so with us now, but he was a former intern who we identified back then as 
had the qualities that we wanted. So we kind of kept in touch with him afterwards. And then our uh, head G League athletic trainer, um, Ayami Sato, she uh, went to Dayton and we have a really close relationship with the director of the PT program at uh, UD. And he's he was a consultant with us for a few years. So we know each other well. And when we needed to hire that position, we didn't have an intern of ours in mind that fit. And he immediately said, oh, you want to talk with her? And she's been a great fit for three years. So, um, but I don't want to have to tell somebody something twice. You know, I want uh -huh. to have a, I want to have a, an intelligent conversation about subject matter. And then I want them to think on it and us to discuss it again, but I don't want to have to repeat the initial conversation. Those are qualities sure. that we, we value is people who aren't going to just work superficially and take the easiest answer, but people who are going to put the thought in and really identify additional steps that we need to take. So my number one criteria is clinical decision-making. And for you personally, you know, with the American corporate ladder, usually you find somebody that is a skilled technician at their craft and instantly you put them into a managerial role in the hopes that they can reproduce their skills and, and visions onto a workforce when in many ways the, the person can just be better off continuing to do their skill rather than up management. But and that's not to imply anything to you. What I'm curious, my question being is that now you have been the medical director, head athletic trainer, how much hands-on do you still do? Do you make it a point to, of course, you're going to be courtside, so you're there, but on the day-to-day, -day, do you let your staff do the majority of that and you're just overseeing it or do you go and dive in? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't still do this job if I didn't have a full caseload. So I think uh, I am, uh, we, just, we, we just went through our annual performance reviews with each other. And you know, you gotta do your self review. And my, my identified weakness that I have for myself that I'm continuing to work on is I'm not a manager. I'm not a natural manager. I have to make specific efforts at that. I have a vision for what I want our staff to be, but I tend more to let me, let me outline what my expectations are for you. And then I'm here to provide a resource if you need it, but I'm not going to consistently be kind of on you to be doing it. And that's, uh, so I definitely, they didn't hire me to be a manager. <laughs> they hired me to be the lead clinician and to kind of set that tone for everybody. So the way we do it is we, we kind of divide the roster up. So we each kind of have our group of, players that we're responsible for each day and then we'll we'll shuffle them around just to get multiple eyes on a on a case but each of us has a full caseload if the day comes is delegating care i'm out <laughs> i i think we're probably on the same playing field there management is not my forte and just expect people to do what they're supposed to do and talk to them when it isn't happening okay so uh the I won't, I won't use the word trend, but there are elements within athletic training, strength and conditioning that are emerging or older concepts that are now re-emerging. There's a renaissance to speak of. Are there things that come across your day-to-day -day that you're interested in, some emerging 
concepts, philosophies. We've already discussed technology, so I'm not really concerned about that, but or older concepts that are resurfacing. That is a great question. That one, that one requires a little more thought. I don't know if I have one <laughs> on the top of my head. But, um, I know we went through, it's, it's not as big now as it was even five years ago, but there was definitely a moment in the last decade, half a decade or so, with the, the high performance model kind of taking over sports. And what I mean by that was the teams were restructuring their, their performance staffs and their sports medicine staffs and putting an overemphasis on the data that we already talked about and wow. going far enough that they, some of them went as far as to place a perform a high performance director at the, the summit of their organizational chart where that was your ultimate decision maker. And that was sort of dismissed in some areas of pro sports as, oh, that's a fad and we don't need to worry about that and we're not gonna do it that way, that's wrong. And I never thought that was wrong. I feel like there's a, a real utility for having all of the data available, but I think it's flawed to put that at the top of the food chain. I think it's the, the personal interaction, the psychology, the sleep, the nutrition, the tissue quality, the movement quality, that all needs to be integrated with that. And I think, we, we went from not using data at all to having data needs to run all of your decisions to now kind of settling back into, okay, well, that's a piece of the puzzle and we're negligent if we ignore it, but we have to use it intelligently and fit it in with everything else. Um, so when you ask that question, that, that timeline is kind of what jumps. Yeah. If we now I can see old things, what's that? Now I can see just how pendulums have a tendency to just swing, but eventually, as time goes by, the weight settles in the center. So it sounds like that was the same with this. Yeah, I mean, logic wins it out, right? Like, if you think that you should make decisions based on any one factor, that's ultimately going to be proven, I think, flawed. So is there a hierarchy within your organization that there is a decision maker at the apex or is it more like instead of a monarchy, it's more of a round table? Yeah, ours is definitely more of the round table for sure. Um, we obviously have to on paper have an organizational chart so that if there is ever a, a really strong disagreement, someone's gotta be the ultimate decision maker and take the heat, you know? So, um, in our, you know, our team physician is ultimately the final, final call, but in reality, the day-to-day, -day, those decisions ultimately rest with me, but we don't, we've worked together long enough that we don't really have that circumstance arise very often. You know, Carl has his caseload, and when he tells me a guy can or can't go or needs to do this as a plan, I don't usually have much reason to doubt that. Um, so we, we definitely handle it more as a collaborative group, but if push came to shove, you know, I would, I would be the decision maker on that, but I don't, I can't even tell you the last time we've had a circumstance like that. Yeah, sure. Now, yeah, 18, 19 years, Josh. I mean, that is a long time. And I'm not going to say to do the same thing time and time again, because I know that in order for you to be where you are, you're, you're not trying to stay ahead of the Joneses. You're just trying to 
get gain more insight, knowledge, experience. What direction are you looking toward for your own your own growth, your own professional growth? What? And I'm not asking for your book list so much as I'm asking for what areas of athletic training, physical therapy, or even conditioning are you starting? To, are you investigating? Are there are there places or people that intrigue you? Yeah, I think the um, uh, utilizing uh, musculoskeletal ultrasound is a diagnostic ultrasound in the training room. It's something that we've added to our to our training room several years ago, but we're getting more efficient at utilizing that um, to help with our day to day decision and our tracking of of soft tissue issues. How how does that work? Are you looking for just excitation of specific muscles when doing a a certain lift or movement? No, we're looking more at uh, tendinosis markers and fatty deposits and how things change over time. So like monthly reassessments of tendons or muscles that have chronically been an issue to see if we're actually moving the needle. If, it's, um, if that's Larry, just, tell, just put him on hold right now. Wish that, I wish this office phone had an ignore function. It doesn't, unfortunately, we gotta ride it out. Oh, uh, <laughs> no problem. Uh, Larry's retired. Larry's not calling on a day-to-day -day basis anymore. He's <laughs> chilling out and playing golf and working in his yard. Good for him. Um, okay, so ultrasound, that's, that's where your, your focus, your interest is going. That's one, but another one is um, the, the streamlining of our ongoing testing data. So right before you and I jumped on a call, Sean uh, Wendell was in my office and we we're literally talking through how we're changing our paradigm this year, given that um, we're, we're definitely a younger team now than we were. Like our focus is we got a lot of young players and we're trying to, we have an opportunity to develop them. They're, you know, some are not even 20 years old yet. We have an opportunity to develop them both as people, as athletes and as basketball players. And it's sort of a unique opportunity to really pick for each guy, what are going to be the key testing measures that we want to repeat every month. Say, okay. what's our test frequency? And how do we use that? We actually hired a, a PhD um, sports performance staff position last year to just execute the testing and then give us advice and highlight what the data showed for that to figure out are we making a difference or not? So we have goals for guys, specific impairment or functional movement goals, but how do we know during the season that we're actually mattering and that we're, that we're doing what we think we're doing? So I think being more intelligent about how we monitor ourselves and hold ourselves accountable for shifting gears mid-season if we need to, to make sure that we're actually at the end of the year when we reassess, did we accomplish the goals with those players that we set out to do? And I think in every sport, especially the NBA, you can get caught up in the day-to-day -day grind of the season because you're playing every other day. And we don't have sure. time to really do that today, you know, Guys are tired from games, so are we going to test them today? Um, I think we're in kind of a unique situation with our team right now where we can really put pen to paper, identify dates, say these are our reevaluation dates. Um, and I think being able to use the right tests that are available to us now and do it in a, a smart way to 
quantify change is what I'm interested in our world moving to. Wow. So be, right. I'm excited to see what the season's going to bring. So, uh, and I can't believe this, uh, this time has flown by. Like it, it seems to whenever I get an engaging guest like yourself. So uh, I can't thank you enough, Josh, for coming on, sharing everything that you've shared, insights, knowledge, and experience. And, and here's to another, who knows, another 18 years, maybe down the road. Knock on wood. We'll see what happens. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Zealous Podcast. Thank you, Josh, for coming on, sharing all you've been doing for the last almost 20 years, the Indiana Pacers. Looking forward to seeing the tip-off for this season coming up. And we will hopefully be back with another amazing guest next week. Remember, it's every Monday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Rocky underscore Snyder. And click that subscribe button, share it with friends. You know the drill. If you haven't done it already, please do. Have a great week.